Okay, everyone, great episode here. This time we're, we're really doing an educational type feature rather than our classic ortho show segment. We're bringing on Michael Croyne, who is the CEO, managing partner of Physician Growth Partners. And what they do is they have a really interesting niche within the orthopedic industry and private equity. And they're sort of an advisory role they're not really an investment banker per se. They're not a bank, but they're sort of a broker. And what's interesting is they know all the orthopedic private equity platforms that are out there. And let's say you're an orthopedic group and you're considering the private equity process. You want to go in, you want to have someone that can help you identify who these people are, know the nuances between them. So that it's going to really help you to, to identify who your perfect date is for the dance so that you get the right partner when it comes to private equity. I think this is a very valuable episode. We'll provide you a lot of very good, important information. Grab your pencil and your paper, write it down. You're going to like this episode. Dr. Scott Sigman, hashtag follow the fro. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of The Ortho Show podcast, where everyone knows we bring you the best of the best in orthopedics. We're going to pivot a little bit today. We're going to call this an educational segment where we're going to talk about what is one of the hottest things in orthopedics, and that is private equity. And we have Michael Croyne, who is the CEO and managing partner of Physician Growth Partners, which acts like an investment banker slash broker within the private equity business to be able to sort of mate orthopedic platforms, orthopedic PE platforms with independent uh, orthopedic groups. How am I doing, Michael? Did I sound that pretty good? I think you hit the nail on the head there. All right. Fantastic. Well, it's great to have you on. We greatly appreciate it. I know that you guys are based out in Chicago. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. All right. Terrific. All right. So first and foremost, let's talk about what, what I think, you know, is absolutely crazy. And I, I say one of my fa favorite lines is, you know, sometimes things are like black licorice and the Grateful Dead. You either love it or you hate it. And that's private equity in orthopedics right now. I was just at a conference uh, at Zeb Kane's conference, the OBBC conference, and the Hopco guys were trashing all over private equity and, you know, really wasn't uh, much, a lot of positive stuff going on. So why is there so much energy about private equity platforms and independent or orthopedic groups coming together? Um, look, I think from my perspective, uh, practicing medicine today is a lot harder than what it was yesterday. And at the same time, practicing medicine tomorrow will be a lot harder than what it is today. And if you're an independent physician or independent surgeon, um, at the end of the day, there's a lot of headwinds coming your way that are putting pressure on the independent doctors, right? You have the hospital systems that are multi-billion dollar organizations that are ultimately employing orthopedic surgeons and ultimately have leverage with, you know, within the, the realm of the, of the market when it comes to independent docs. You also have uh, payers within the market that continue to push pressure on independent doctors where reimbursement rates aren't going back up, right? <laughs> So the scenario here, outside of the economics, et cetera, but the scenario here that I view on why private equity and orthopedics can ultimately drive, let's call it uh, 
representation to independent docs is because you finally have independent doctors now can have a backbone where they can have some financial support behind them to be able to take on the multi-billion dollar organizations in front of them. Right. All right. So yeah. So so that's very interesting. So here in Massachusetts, for example, the Mass General and the Brigham decided they wanted to save the healthcare system money. And they put that together two billion dollars to plop down ASC and outpatient centers directly next to the ones that already existed into the community because they recognized that the world's moving towards ASCs. Well, fortunately for us, it was blocked by the attorney general and that didn't happen. But those are the types of headwinds that you're talking about that we see. And so you're going up against, as you said, large hospital groups, insurance groups. You know, Do you have the financial backing to be able to make decisions that can propel you? All of these things are part of the reasons why people consider private equity. Right, yeah, no, and I'm with you. I think, look, at the end of the day, you should, when you're thinking about doing a transaction you uh, with private equity, you gotta think about it from, I think, three perspectives. Number one, and I think first and foremost, the most important is the ability to maintain the clinical autonomy that you've had historically going forward. Number two is making sure that the partner that you uh, do a transaction with actually ultimately can provide you the resources and the capital and ultimately empower your organization to continue to grow. If you don't find that the partner that's sitting across the table is going to be able to actually help you then we would be the first one to say, hey, it probably doesn't make sense to do that. And then I think, look, at the end of the day, the third component, and that's the elephant in the room, is the money, right? The economics. The economics do need to make sense. But at the end of the day, my position here is number one and number two needs to be checked first before just thinking about it as a way to make uh, a level of uh, an economic, achieve an economic event or, or, or some sort of uh, succession plan. Yeah, so let's let's break that down. So let's go for the first one. So clinical autonomy, what I would say, which, which is super important, again, my group, we have a little bit of a bias. We joined the Spire uh, orthopedic platform a little over a year ago, was really the idea of corporate practice in medicine, right? You know, can these groups come in, these financially backed groups that come in with private equity, come in and tell you how to practice medicine? You got to work more hours. You know, we're going to take away your nurse practitioner. You can't use that cortisone shot. And I think that's super important that you identify and make sure that in the operating agreement right at the very top is that, you know, the physicians will continue to maintain, you know, clinical autonomy to make decisions about medicine on a daily basis. So thrilled and agree with you 100% on that. The resource thing makes a lot of sense too, right? You want to add additional doctors. Maybe you're missing some ancillary services. And then I think the third thing is super important, which is to monetize your practice, right? Most right. other you know, practices when they're done, uh, whether you're a lawyer or accountant, you sell your practice when you're done. You move on, you give it to somebody else, right? We would just, just typically walk away. So, so let's talk a little bit about specifically you know, what your role is, right? So I understand you've got the private practice groups who are considering sort of going to a platform. You've got the private equity backed orthopedic platforms that are there. Right. You know, you've got attorneys that are going to represent both sides to make sure that all the lawyering stuff gets done. So tell us what exactly are you guys doing um, uh, at uh, Physician Growth Partners that that's important for us to know about? Right. Um, I think the first and foremost, the most important thing that we do is ultimately bring all of the relevant groups to the table to allow our clients to be able to explore all their options before choosing a partner. 
uh, at the end of the day, you really have one shot at this, right? And once that deal is done, you're, you're, you're married, right? <laughs> and it's very tough to get a divorce from that marriage. Um, so what we ultimately do as advisors is we represent the founder-led group in a way that they have the opportunity to explore all their options and put them in the position to make the best decision on which group is going to be the right cultural fit for them. Because at the end of the day, private equity is not created equal. Every group that's out there, uh, whether it's Ortho Alliance, Growth Ortho, Spire, uh, Aligned Ortho, et cetera, they do have a slightly different model, right? Depending on, do they have a, uh, let's call it a strategy about around building density across a region? Do we have a national strategy? Do they have a strategy around, hey, let's integrate all of the practice management and EMR software, or are we going to let each region have their own? Do they have a strategy around, hey, we're very focused around, let's go after all the big uh, big groups that are out there and then put them all together? Or are we kind of looking at this as, hey, a buy and build within a market? So long story short, every group is very different. And what works for you may not be the group that we represent, what would work for the group that we represent in Austin or what we're working with in the Midwest, et cetera. And by allowing to you all to explore all your options, it puts you in the best position to make a decision on which group is going to be the right fit, which is, I think, is the most important here, right? At the same time, what we do is we are you know, professionals, right? We've done over 40 transactions. I would say probably around five of them or half a dozen of them have been within the orthopedic space. So we ultimately know and can position accordingly on what's favorable and not favorable and utilize and leverage our experience to ultimately put our client in the best position, not just to get the highest value, but also understand the dynamics between the employment agreement, the operating agreement, the purchase agreement, and negotiate in a manner that kind of hits the three buckets that I mentioned earlier on, hey, how do we develop an a, a deal that the private equity firm will never be able to dictate how many patients they see or how many vacation days you take, et cetera. At the same time, how do we diligence the private equity group in a way that they're actually going to be able to provide resources to the table, right? If they have enough density within a geographic region, is our client going to experience a potential pay rate, right? Is the client is going to, is there synergies associated with thought of, hey, look, by coming together with this group, we're going to be able to now expand your ancillary services with physical therapy, imaging, et cetera, right? And then the third bucket, when we say is economics, is look, you, if you leverage competition, you're ultimately going to be able to maximize value, right? And if a group really wants you, they're ultimately going to pay up for it, knowing that the the, the guy next door, their competitor, is putting that purchase price in front of them. So that that's how it kind of put it all together around around what we do and how we bring it all together. All right, good. So I just want to keep it simple, just so because you, you use some some terms here. So you talked about you provide advice to the founder led group, but really what you're what we're specifically talking about is you provide counsel to the orthopedic groups with Correct. the doctors that are looking to engage a private equity platform. And in so doing, you come to the table and you provide them counsel on the various platforms that are available and that are out there. So when I first did this, when we started looking a year and a half or two years ago, there were no more than maybe five private equity orthopedic platforms. Right now, 25 or so, would you say, active at this point? Yeah, probably, yeah, 20, 15 to 20, 25, depending on if you include multi-specialty in the mix, et cetera, correct. So there's a bunch of options that are available that are out there. Now, the orthopedic groups that you're working with, 
are different sizes, right? I mean, Resurgence wants to go running around and 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 buy you know two hundred and fifty or five hundred doctors at a time in one of these large groups. Where let's say another group such as Aligned Orthopedics or Spire may be looking to work towards you know grabbing fifteen to twenty doctors in a practice right. and do, doing a regional approach. So you bring these, you bring the options to the table. You've worked with these PE platforms. You help the orthopedic practices to differentiate between them so that they know what they're dealing with as well. It's pretty much sound like we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, I think the, the the key component though is instead of us providing the advice, we let our client explore it for themselves, right? So when we bring these groups together, we run a so-called, let's call it process, where the initial stage of the process is us putting together a package that ultimately describes what the opportunity looks like and why our client is uniquely positioned to be uh, to be partnered with private equity. No, so you know people on both sides of the table. You've done transactions right. at this point, so you know all the players in the field. Right, so we know all the players. We present the materials to the players, and we say, hey, look, we want you all to submit an initial offer that doesn't just talk about economics, but also your experience of what you think you can bring to the table. And let's, once once we deliver that packet, three weeks later, they're going to deliver us a, a, a response, right? And that response, we're then going to work with the client and say, hey, look, out of the 10 or 15 groups that came to the table, which five groups do we really want to spend more time with? And that's where that dating exercise comes in, in terms of having dinner meetings, management meetings, et cetera, until we put our client in the best position to make a decision around, hey, which group is going to be the best fit for us? And ultimately, how do we kind of go down from five to then two to then finally putting them in a position to make that decision on one group? And by the time they do that, 80% of that deal is negotiated up front so that once they choose a party of choice, at the end of the day, there is enough confidence that that deal is going to go through and there's no skeletons in the closet or any surprises once they choose that partner of choice. And that's kind of what we do in the background as we explore this so-called process. Does that make sense? So you bring these people to the table, you sent out 15 letters, you got 10, you got 10 back, you analyze the whole deal, you spend a lot of time looking at the specifics, uh, and then uh, you decide and you narrow it down. And then at that point, uh, a letter of intent has to be signed at that point, right? The letter of intent is when you now start the process of the formal negotiation. I want all the listeners to know, make sure your letter of intent is evaluated by an attorney before you sign it, right? It's not right. etched in stone. There can be some changes that are made, but it's much more difficult to try and change the deal, you know, from the letter of intent if you've already signed it. So legal counsel is separate from what you guys are offering. You're just helping people to identify the partnership and then legal counsel has to be a part of the negotiation as well. Right, so let, to your point, once let's call it the 10 offers come in, we're gonna work with the client to say, hey, let's choose five of them to meet with you all and really start building a relationship. As we build those relationships, we're gonna request those parties to ultimately submit a final letter of intent. Right. And that's going to be a, a pretty comprehensive document that really outlines what, what the deal may look like. And that will be a situation where once we receive that, our job here as advisor would be to negotiate a lot, all the business and economic points associated with that deal. At the same time, we use the attorneys to make sure they cross their T's and dot the I's to ensure that letter of intent will ensure that the group is ultimately protected. Right. So when I look at our job here, it's really focused on business and economic points. When I look at the attorney's job, 
is to ensure that they are able to formalize whatever's in the letter of intent in the appropriate documents, but also ensure that in the letter of intent, it's properly written to ensure that there's protection associated with our client as well. All right. So you brought up an interesting point and I can go from personal experience. You know, it's not just the platform sort of documentation or what they have to offer national versus regional. I think it's also the personality of the people that are involved in the platform, because at the end of the day, you know, you're going to be working with these people on a day to day, you know, process of your business. You are selling your business. You're going to be partnering with them and you got to make sure you like the infrastructure, the people that you're going to be working with. Do they even have an infrastructure? Do they have a chief growth officer? Do they have a chief intelligence officer? Do they have an IT? All the things, human resource type things that are going to take all of that crazy responsibility that we used to have off the table, which is one of the reasons you join private equity is so that you don't have to deal with all the day-to-day -day crap that drives you crazy when your secretary calls out sick and you got to decide who's going to take care of that. All of that stuff hopefully gets taken care of. So I think these are, are really good points. Now, Let's talk about point number three that you brought up, which is the monetization, right? The monetization yeah. of your practice, the ability to now have value to your practice that, that you did not have before. And I think that's super important. And that process gets evaluated based on your earnings before interest, depreciation and taxes, EBITDA. You get a number, they give you a multiple. And then once that comes together, you then decide how much is going to be paid in cash, how much is going to be paid in rollover equity. And you're involved in all of that conversation and decision-making and advising your clients on that as well as it, as it progresses? Yeah, correct. So what we do as an organization is we ultimately work with the client from the very beginning to develop a, a financial model that ultimately positions to maximize the EBITDA, right? That you mentioned, the earnings before interest, tax, appreciation, amortization. And that EBITDA calculation is 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 an interesting, uh, let's call it calculation, because it's somewhat subjective. At the end of the day, uh, what's unique about this marketplace is not only can you get credit for the historical adjustments or one-time events, you can also position to get credit for any of the initiatives or investments that you've made uh, in the recent months or the coming months, right? Whether it's a new location, whether it's bringing on a couple new providers, whether it's adding on an ancillary service that you historically didn't provide, et cetera. Because you did the hard work, you ultimately should be rewarded for it, which is all part of that EBITDA calculation to ensure you position accordingly when you approach the private equity groups and say, hey, we need to, we deserve to get credit for this. Here is why, right? And that's part of our job here is not to let the buyer dictate what the EBITDA is, but let us dictate and support what that EBITDA is to ensure we can ultimately maximize value for our clients. Which is great. And again, I want to be clear to our listeners. It's not like pie in the sky. You can't just say, hey, we think we have an EBITDA of 60, 60 million. I'm like, it has to be legitimate. It you know, right. Because at the end of the day, they're going to check the numbers. You got to open up your kimono. We got to see what you got. What is it real? Is it not real? The number's true. For us in particular, you know, we were post, you know, pandemic. So we arranged to say, look, you got to throw 2020 out. I mean, how does that even count? Right. right. So we went back to 2019. We had two new partners that came in, just like you said, which we felt were going to add value to our group moving forward. We wanted that to be a part of the valuation as well. But all right, all right, dude, here's the deal. This is the big question of the table. You got to know this, right? At the end of the day, 
you know, Michael Croyne has to get paid too. So talk to us, right? What's the percentage? You guys have to take a percent of part of the deal. And I'm sure that's negotiated in advance as you guys are trying to do this prior to signing any deal. So tell us about that. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, once we educate the client on our service and the value that they provide and they'd say, Hey, Michael or physician growth partners, we think that you'd be the right advisor for us or a trusted advisor to represent us. We'd ultimately go into an engagement letter. That engagement letter will be a percentage of the deal. Uh, we put our money where our mouth is. We don't have any sort of stipend or hourly rate or any sort of monthly retainer, et cetera. Our alignment is strictly on getting that transaction done. Dep the, the fee percentage is ultimately dependent on the size of the deal, right? Um, and there's, uh, you know, sometimes we do a flat fee. Sometimes the clients like to have, hey, let's do some sort of tiered approach or something in between. But at the end of the day, our model and our strategy is ultimately how do we completely align with our client and ultimately only get paid if we're successful in representing them in a transaction process. So unlike the attorneys who get paid for every word that they speak or right. every letter that they've written <laughs> down on a piece of paper or one of their associates. Or extra sentence that they have. <laughs> right, exactly. You guys, are you set this at the front. Everybody knows what it is. It's transparent. This is what you're going to pay us. And if the deal doesn't go through... Michael Croy doesn't get paid. Correct. Correct. Right. So there's obviously a lot of uh, reason and rationale to make sure that you help get the deal done. So one of my questions is, it seems to me, you know, with the, inve the investment bankers, the brokers such as yourself that are brought into these deals, it's typically the larger private equity transactions. There's a lot of people at play here. But tell me, I mean, you've done five or six of these deals. Tell us about the size of the practices the orthopedic practices that you've dealt with, I think that would be important for our listeners to know. Right. Yeah. Well, look, our model and our strategy is ultimately, are we able to create value for our client? Right. And if we are, we're, we're seeking to win that, win that mandate, win that engagement. Uh, from a size perspective, I mean, we've done deals as low as probably $2 million in EBITDA and ortho, and we've gone up as close to $10 million in EBITDA and ortho. Uh, from a broader perspective, uh, similar like uh, orthopedics, like in urology or gastro, et cetera. I mean, we have groups that are are closer to 15 to $20 million in EBITDA. But at the end of the day, our model and our focus and our strategy is, hey, look, are we in a position to help our clients or help these independent physicians or orthopedic surgeons in a way to create value, not just from an economic perspective, but also from a also putting them in the best position, make a decision on a, on a, on a group that would be their partner. Cause you can't, you can't, you really can't unwind that. It's such a big decision, such a big point. And how can you add professionals and resources on your side to ensure you're making the right decision and you're not leaving any, any money on the table here? I think those are incredibly important points. It's very difficult because, you know, once you get to the second and third bites, the operating agreements, the agreements that you've negotiated carry with you moving forward. They protect you uh, when you go through the second bite so they can't change your RVUs and the clinical decision making, all that. Make sure it's right on the front side. So I'm going to ask you to bring out your crystal ball here, man. Make a little prediction for us in 2023. Is, is orthopedics and private equity going to increase or is it going to go away? What, where do you see the demand? So I think... At this point, as you mentioned, we have, what, 20, 25 private equity-backed platforms in, in orthopedics. I don't see many more new established private equity-backed platforms uh, coming onto the table, right? I think there's a lot of already competition between the private equity world competing, private equity-backed 
orthopedic groups competing for the same assets. So what we so we're going to see in what I foresee seeing in 2023 is a lot of consolidation and growth within the portfolio company of the private equity group like the Spires, Ortho Alliance, Growth Ortho, Unity, MSK, et cetera. What you're going to see is a lot of those private equity backed strategic groups or private equity backed orthopedic groups going after and trying to consolidate and either build density, seek to enter into new markets, or ultimately focus in on positioning themselves for that second bite. What's interesting about orthopedics, right? There's still, it's still very early on, right? People always call about innings or however you want to call it. But at the end of the day, where we are now is there's a, uh, you know, a lot of the transaction happened in like 1920s, 2021, there were several. So when we go into 2023, 2024, private equity's holding period is really three to five years, right? So it'll be very interesting over the next 12 to 24 months to see some of these groups go after their second bike, perhaps a third bike. We already saw some groups starting to merge together, right? Different private equity groups saying, hey, let's come together because we're stronger together. But I all ultimately think that as you kind of get to that investment horizon, you're going to start seeing some of the larger PE funds have an opportunity to participate in some of these initial PE back processes where you're going to have a, several announcements happening. Um, yeah. I mean, were you at the JP Morgan conference in January? I mean, it seems to me um, that they were coming out. Um, we'll give you a, a, an opportunity to answer, but uh, it seemed to me like they're saying, you know, for the, for the well-backed PE platforms that have sharpened their pencil that, you know, are well capitalized, uh, we anticipate there's still plenty of money sitting on the sideline. People are not investing in the stock market, that these types of deals are going to continue second bites of the apple, merger acquisition, those types of things over into 2023. So I think that's probably similar to what you're describing. Yeah, correct. Correct. And I think, look, at the end of the day, the biggest growth driver on these PE-backed ortho groups is going to be a buy and build strategy. Hey, how do you, you know, enter into uh, an opportunity with a, a beachhead, right, or a hub? And then how do you build around it? I mean, that's how they ultimately can create value and, and ultimately build on uh, the ability to, you know, open up, you know, get ancillary services on recruiting, opening up new locations, and, and ultimately having enough leverage to perhaps eventually go back to the payers, right? Hundred percent. You know, I want to I want to give a plug to my my good friend Gary Hirschman for the Healthcare Transactions Conference. I'm not sure if you're going to be there, but it's in Vegas. That's part of the American Academy with Big Surgery. Uh, so our listeners out there, it's going to be a great opportunity for you to listen and hear from panelists all throughout soup to nuts when it comes to private equity as to the transactions, how you do it. There'll be physicians there that have been through it before. Uh, my, my guess is, Michael, you might want to be there too, because it sounds to me like it's a hot place to be. Yeah. Um, and it's free, so anybody can go as long as you register. Uh, but I think that's a great opportunity for our listeners, anyone that's even considering the idea of private equity, whether it's now or on the horizon, it's definitely something to to consider. I think, Michael, you've really given us a really nice explanation of your niche within the private equity space. And I think that, you know, for the right orthopedic practices that are out there that are thinking that private equity is the way to go, uh, I think it's nice to have uh, someone in your corner that's going to help you to make what are really important and very, you know, uh, complicated decisions uh, as far as how you're going to be able to sell your practice. So really appreciate your time and being on today. Yeah, no, look, thanks for having me. I think at the end of the day, uh, look, we're, we're here to try to help, right? Doctors are, 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 are 
notorious for being great at, at what they do. And ultimately our job would be to create the, the balance between ultimately, or the bridge between the financial guys trying to strike a deal and ultimately the doctors trying to be interested in potentially doing that deal. Right. And make that's sure they're properly represented. Yeah, no, I think that's really a really valid point. Really super happy you came on. You really have brought some really valuable information to our listeners. It's been a pleasure having you on, Michael. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.